I believe we're now moving into a new era. So we could be entering into a new ginormous bull market because of a new adaptation, innovation, technology that we can't even see now. We made all the mistakes, right? So been there, done that. And so we, we're trying to produce all of that out there so you guys can be 20 years ahead of me when, when we got started. Welcome everybody to self-storage income. We are talking about getting that first deal in 2024, or if you already have one, the next one and the next one after that. But there's a few things that go into it. 2024 is going to be a wild year. So we want to walk you kind of through how to go about this and do it. So the general steps that it takes, what it looks like, and how you can actually land and close on that first deal or your second or third in 2024. Heck yeah, man. I'm excited to dive into this because again, like we've been talking a lot on the podcast, these these times of uncertainty can really be the times of opportunity. Just like you've shared a lot of your experiences going through 07, 08, 09, all those times when everybody was just pulling back the reins, sitting on the sidelines saying, oh, well, you know, when all the deals come or when all the money comes, then I'll, you know, pull the trigger. And yep. a lot of those people never did, yep. never do. And um, it's just, again, the signals and the noise. It's the same thing we've been talking a lot about. Um, so I'm excited to dive into this, get a little bit more tactical and say, hey, step one, step two, step three, this is what you need to be looking at and doing to go out there and actually get your next deal or get your own deal. I mean, we've got people in our group that, I mean, even just this last year with all the things that we've seen going on, we had one individual in the inner circle, three deals in a month or something like that. Um, it's just, it's amazing once you actually start getting out there putting these tools and resources to work and executing just how much of a difference that can make and how much further you can be ahead literally 30 days later. A lot of people call these things, you know, these are uncertain times, which is always interesting to me because I'm like, when wasn't an uncertain time? When is there ever certainty for anything? You've had COVID, yeah. you've had, like, it's <laughs> the moment you think that there's certainty is almost always when there's guaranteed to be complete uncertain because you didn't even see it yeah. whereas right now we're like oh we live in uncertain times and it's like well actually everybody's pretty certain something's going to happen so if something happens people are out looking for it, it it's it, it's a conundrum that we find where we we believe right in the things that are currently happening that they will continue on exactly like they're happening if times are good well, then it's certain that times will continue to be good. If they're bad or if they're struggling like today, well, something else is going to happen, right? It's not going to just get better. Um, and generally speaking, it's the opposite of that for the very reason that it is that mm -hmm. people are looking for things to go wrong. So, <laughs> you know, one of the things that I've vastly underestimated, which I think most people do, is that we are really good problem finders. So we are really good at finding, creating, and causing problems. But we are excellent at solving them. And I think that we, a lot of times, as a human race, completely, vastly underestimate our ability to solve complex problems. And uh, we've seen this. Whenever the world's falling apart, things like that, yes, bad things happen, but we figured out ways to come about it, sometimes better than others, 
right? But look at 2008. I mean, you know, it's for all of you that weren't in business then, and uh, there's obviously a lot, the largest generation that America's ever seen were not working adults when that happened. Um, For those where, remember, that was dire is an understatement. We got to a point where it was like, oh, the banking's, banking won't work. ATMs will stop spitting out money. Like the financial, everything was going to be gone in a week. Like over the weekend, we almost lost the financial system. It was everybody lost their jobs, right? It was just rampant. There was empty houses lying everywhere. There was, it was stock market. There was no end to the problems. And I think one of the reasons it even got so bad is nobody could figure it out. Like nobody could see how does this stop? How, how will the bleeding ever stop? And it did. They figured it out. Um, and that was, you know, looking back on it, not only just how bad it was, but that they actually solved those problems. Uh, now, people will argue how they solved them, but the fact of the matter is they they did. And it, it often reminds me of the perpetual bulls, the Dr. Dooms. And they're always right. So, I mean, the perpetual bears um, and the Dr. Dooms, because it's, it's funny because it's not that they're wrong, but the outcome doesn't necessarily mean it'll happen. And and uh, there's some authors that I love and, and they've written about this. They're like, man, I, I, we've seen these problems. I can't believe this situation actually continued. I can't believe like it didn't fall apart then back in the 80s. And they're writing like, this is over. This cannot continue. Right. And, but it did. Um, and it's because although we can identify problems, what we don't see, we see these problems and we don't see the outcomes. Why? Because they haven't been created yet. So we're seeing things happen without knowing outcomes. So obviously it's not, it doesn't make sense to say, yeah, well, we're just going to get through this smoothly until we figure out the outcomes, right? But that creates a, a very big bias almost in us. That's the same when it's good times. When it's good times, we don't see the problem so they don't exist, mm-hmm. which is obviously not true. Again, like you said, it's total opposite. Total opposite. You're blind. Exactly. You're blind. So the problems are much worse when they exactly. do happen. Um, and that's, it's something I think for everybody to remember. We have trillions of dollars. We have like the, the, the incentive to keep the party going is so big. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I, it, it's you, the amount of people that, need things to keep going and need to be successful and need it to work right that's everybody yeah the stakes are pretty high there yeah i mean it's almost i mean there's really no other choice there is no other choice yeah so uh total failure is almost betting and not even total failure but even depressions or even how much worse could of course it can get worse but you're betting on or against the entire economy and when we look at the situation, right, I guess maybe I'm I pragmatic and I think that's why it actually gives me hope because I 
being through it, I'm surprised at the innovations, what people have done. Um, I am nervous about things because I'm also pragmatic and nervous about certain areas and how things will play out and everything. But I think that people that found that betting against or not participating is always almost a losing thing. It, it never really works out in your favor. The only time that betting against things work in the economy is in the short term. So if you take all of the bull markets versus bear markets, bear markets are an outlier. I mean, you generally markets just go up. So you have huge streaks where markets go up and then you have very short times when they go down hmm. and then they go right back to going up. That's been always that's the history of mankind right even countries that came and went and look look at where everybody is so i've been big on perspective and i made a whole uh podcast for the aj osborne podcast that you can go like where i took actually every single era of the american economy and as it went through and what had oh, happened yeah in like the 60 year period that was the gilded age from the robber barons the gilder gilded age all the way up to the world war uh, world wars and it's like, wow. this is one person's lifetime. Mm -hmm. You have multiple world wars. You have a Gilded Age with Robert Barons. You have the invention of electricity. You have like inventions that blew the world away. Um, great railway systems, railway yeah. systems. You have all in one lifetime, right? And the world was to those people irrecognizable at the end and we're also once again that's how it's looking for us so if you look back at it you say all right our grandparents for those of you that still have grandparents that are alive i don't but the life that the world that they're in today is unrecognizable to where they started after the world wars and that's just in their lifetime right so the progress that comes out is usually not known the progress that came in the last bull run was largely driven by the internet. So we had, our country became more efficient. We had huge wealth creation, everything out of stagnant 80s and high interest rates. We had the Reagan era and uh, the internet came. We had inventions, we got out of wars and it created a huge bull market, right? For a long time. We had like two decades of, you know, really good times. And then the internet start the 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 end of that era that cycle the yield from the internet was much less productive so when you got into the 2000s the yield became from like social networks and things that made very few rich but didn't add really productivity so you started to get really skewed versions and outcomes where the the prior to that the internet was very much um, a productivity driver, efficiency. Uh, it created huge startups, businesses, right? All that. Where the, the later on in the internet, like all things, you started to have major companies, consolidation, and it just kind of like sucked up all of that productivity and wealth into a few hands. And then the surplus of it was a lot less productive and useful. Um, I believe we're now moving into a new era, like the internet, was, which was AI. So before you couldn't see, though, out of the 80s, out of the problems, everything, nobody could see how the 90s, like, why would the 90s be great? Right. Why? Why would the late 80s? Why, there was no real reason for it. Does that make sense? 
the internet created the reason for productivity. You had and all sorts of other things that were going on in the economy that were created, meaning this, that the economy grows because people create things. We create things to be more efficient. We create goods and services. We, we actually create a future that doesn't exist. So it's hard for us to really understand how can it get better? There's so many problems. Well, it gets better for the things that you don't even see yet. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you have things like AI, which I believe will do what early internet did. So the advancement of these technologies should increase efficiency, productivity. It's spawning new businesses and all these things that we don't even know yet about. But it's, I mean, AI just went mainstream in like 2023. And the adaption of that was the fastest adoption of any company in the world, right? The amount of users on that one company open AI uh, was absurd. It blew past any other Instagram, like anything else like that. But it's not used for social things. It's actually used for productivity. And, and, and that's the thing that other companies are using to build other companies, right? So it's an innovation spur. And you see things like that. And all of a sudden, the added GDP, productivity, efficiencies, new companies and everything that it'll spur we don't even know, but it could be trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. So we could be entering into a new ginormous bull market because of a new adaptation, innovation, technology, and that we can't even see now. The whole point to my ramblings here is just that we see problems, we don't see the solutions or the things that have not come but they're obviously going to come and bring value. So it's like a a scale, right? That gets offset and all of a sudden it's good, good, good. But then we have some bad things that are more, right? But normally sitting on the sidelines, waiting for the time to be right, um, that never occurs. We, We talk a lot about this when you're dealing with acquisitions that the market acts like a scale and you have execution and you have yield. So how good the deal is, yield, how much you yield, and then you have execution. When execution is super easy, and money's easy, and you can get deals, everything else like that, yield goes down. When it gets hard, yield goes up. So the question is, pick your hard. Exactly right. <laughs> but today, yield is way better than it was for the last two years. But people are like, it's too hard or there's too much risk. Yeah, too many problems but to solve. It's too much risk, but you're getting higher, higher yield. That means you higher, have higher cash flows. And two, it's not even priced for perfection. In fact, it's the opposite. Is it really more risky than it was two years ago? I'd argue to say no, yeah. not at all. In fact, it's way 100%. less risk. Once again, our perspective and the biases that are put into place, they lead us to feel and we don't know outcomes. So we're taking bad things that we can see and know today, and it has been, and maybe the markets and things have been getting bad because interest rates have been going up. So we've seen that contraction in the economy, which is part of the plan, which they're trying to do. And so we assume that those things will keep happening. That's not true though. Just like we assumed that easy money and good times would keep happening. That also wasn't true. When you guys are looking at property management software for your storage facilities, there's a ton of options out there, but no other option compares to Tenant Inc. Tenant Inc. is going to be your one-stop shop solution that has an amazing amount of tools that you can deploy at your fingertips to maximize the value of your facility, to operate it more efficiently, more effectively. They have an open API where you can back in almost anything you want. 
you own your data, and it's just an incredible solution. I can't say enough good things about these guys. Link is in the show notes. Be sure to check out Tenant Inc. What's up, everybody? The number one question that I get from you guys and others, is this a good deal? Meaning, should I pay for this price? Is there opportunity and what is the risk? Well, we actually do that for you and we can actually show you and tell you through feasibility studies. We underwrite the asset and the market just exactly how we look at the deal. And we provide you with a full report, including financials, competitions, and what's happening in the marketplace. We look at opportunity and risks. These are studies that you'll even need when you go to banks to get money. If you're looking at a storage facility and you want us to analyze that market and deal, follow the link in the show notes to get your feasibility study today. 2024, it's your year. And realize that if you're struggling or you're worried about things, first of all, there's a lot of noise, ignore that, and realize the opportunities that exist. That scale, which one do you want, right? Do you want higher yield or do you want it to be easier? It's fine either way, you can pick, but I would prefer higher performance, higher yield than I would take easy. Now, when we talk about whether it's easy or hard, we're talking about access, opportunity, and ability, right? So first thing is you need to have access to deals. You need to have opportunity to actually buy them. And then you need to be able to execute, okay? These are our three legs to our stool we will talk about today. Now, in order to set this up and go right, the first thing we have to do is have a very detailed clear buy box. We had a webinar talk about this we had i don't know it was a few thousand people um signed up for it we had over 500 people no it, it stopped us at 500 because we hadn't upgraded our zoom so sorry for everybody that didn't get to fail that. but uh 500 <laughs> people went on into, and that, that was great that's we so cool so uh and we talked about this okay so you can even go if you guys follow um and sign up it, just give the email. I think it, it, we have our newsletter and we have all those videos there. So it's on the site, everybody. Email us and we can send you uh, that stuff. But we the buy box, the reason why it's important is because in order to get deals, so coming into the new year, you want to get a deal. In order to find that deal, you need a lot of help, right? You So we look at the three legs to the stool of finding deals. We have brokers. We have networking, going out, working with other people. And then we also have our direct to sellers. These three legs equal the stool that um, is our acquisition strategy. Now, none of those legs work, though, unless your buy box. So your buy box is the seat that the stool legs stick into. They cannot go find you deals if they don't know what they're doing. If you're networking with people and they say, what do you want? And you say, ah, good deal. That doesn't mean anything. If you're talking to a broker and the broker says, well, yeah, you're interested. Well, what do you want? Let me see. Oh, I'm looking for a good deal. If you have any good deals, shoot them to me. That doesn't mean anything. A good deal to you is not a good deal to him or another person or anything else. So what you're basically saying is, I don't know, so don't spend any time on me. That's all you're saying. Right. I don't know. I'm not serious. I'm not really in this game. I don't even understand it. So I don't even know what to say to you. So I'm just going to waste your time. Yeah. You're not getting a call back. You're not getting called back. <laughs> Nobody's working with you. Yeah. They're not going to network with you. You should say, I am looking for a 25,000 square foot to 40,000 square foot storage facility in a market 
with uh, at least 10,000 people, but no more than 30,000 people with a growth rate of somewhere between 0.2% and 2%. And I want it to be within this geographic region of the United States. Mm -hmm. And I want there to be no new storage facilities built. I want it to be mom and pop owned and operated, which means they're not using um, any marketing strategies, any limited access online, they have stagnant rates, and they're actively involved in the operations. That's a buy box. Mm -hmm. You just literally gave a map and to somebody said, here's exactly where it is, and then they can go find it. So what you've done now is you've given a target and they can hit it. Um, without that, everybody, you're not going anywhere. You're not. Our deals came early on, mostly off market from a broker who I'd built a really good relationship with. And the relationship was built on our understanding and our discussions and viewpoints of the industry. We would spend hours talking about where the industry's headed, why we believe certain things will happen, um, what it meant, and I wanted to know how he viewed the industry markets, how he viewed value, how he viewed underwriting, and we'd go back and forth. And uh, through that, he understood not just my buy box, but he understood how I look at deals when I'm going to buy them, what I like, what I don't. And so he'd just bring me deals. And the deals that he brought me, these were off-market deals that he knew AJ loves these deals. So he's like, dude, I got one for you. And he meant it. It was for me right? He saw it, thought AJ would buy this deal. So he went and told the owner, I've got somebody that would love to buy your facility, a deal just like you. Brokers are market makers. That's it. Buyers, sellers, they put them together and they get a deal done. So because of that, he'd bring me a deal and guess what? I bought him. And if I didn't, which was actually rare because he was so good at bringing me exactly what I want, but we had to sit down and explain this is why this is why we don't like it and then he would debate with me we would talk about it we go back and forth why this is good because it meets your buy box and this is why we underwrote it and there were some times that he convinced me because he said i understand that you don't originally think this because of xx and x let me walk you through though why this deal actually meets your performance requirements that the market's not seeing and he showed me on some deals and we bought them so the point being is I got deals just because the people that were out hunting for deals knew what I wanted and knew that I would close. I really love that. And I love the idea of building those relationships with brokers in that fashion, because I think a lot of times, I think a lot of times both sellers and brokers can get painted in a negative light by people um, oh, in the yeah. industry and like, oh, they just don't know what they're talking about or trying to get as much money as they want or do this or do that. And taking the actual time to invest in yourself, in your business and someone else's business and profession and building them up in a way that you, again, can make the markets together. There's so much value there. And I think just saying that, oh, well, people just don't know or they're painting people with a broad brush, you know, in any any circumstance is just a uh, recipe for failure and not not productive. No, not at all. And if you're a broker, because we know we have lots of these listening, reach out to us. And I'm like, what we can do this. I can put on a thing where it's just for broker stuff, but I can walk 
brokers, especially ones that are new to this industry and working on it, but walk through exactly what we're looking for and why. So I can help them underwrite. Um, so we could do that, send a message in guys, and I'm happy to talk and discuss with you because I know brokers too, you, you gotta understand everybody that's listening, They time is everything to them. These guys are salespeople. They'll work on something for months and not get paid. Anything, zero. And if that thing doesn't transact, they just wasted a quarter of the year and they're not ever gonna get paid for that, right? So that is very dangerous for them. They're not going to go work on a deal for you for months that you then won't transact on. Don't waste their time, people. That's, first of all, rude, but it's also not professional. Mm -hmm. They are working and they don't get paid until you buy. So leading them on and saying that you will not and you never close, right? That is uh, extraordinarily unprofessional. And uh, don't treat them like first of all they're disposable but also that their job isn't um extraordinarily valuable to you because it is you need these people right and so there those relationships will be the best things and that's when you have your buy box finding those deals we talked about brokers now we got to talk about though too the networking side this is why at self storage income we're creating our community this is why we're building it out we now have hundreds of students we have a whole community based on this. I have done deals with multiple of the students. We have put people together that are buying deals together. Um, because it is a team sport, we all win together. When you're looking at this, one of my biggest things that I needed was to network. So this podcast, my books, even our educational site, everything else, this was all created as an acquisition strategy. That's why I do this. I want everybody to know what I do and how I do it and what I want so they can bring it to us. Mm -hmm. And that worked very well. It really grew our company. I'm not asking for anything except for opportunity with others. So I've done deals. We've closed on them with our partners. We've it, it's because it's win win, right? It works really well. So I'm willing to give out all our information, our secrets for free because that is part of our acquisition strategy. I network now people know about us and people want want to do deals with us and it's worked very well. Now, the next side to that is our direct outreach. So direct outreach to owners. Um, the direct outreach is a long game and it is a very effective one. First of all, don't do direct outreach unless you have a buy box. Understand that. Um, and then find those people. And the key to it is build relationships, not transactions. I talk about this all the time. It's a long game, not a short game. If you're not authentic and if you are doing the same thing that everybody else is doing, your opportunities will be way lower. You will transact less. Um, and you have to remember that these sellers, everybody are getting hit up all the time. So avoid single option outcomes. Yes, no questions, right? Focus on the long term, build relationships, and that'll pay off a lot more. Um, what I really like about that strategy is, again, going back to the relationship building aspect to get whether you're talking to brokers, direct outreach, but I love the direct outreach to the sellers because you're talking to the individuals that are in it, running it every day. Yeah. And what an amazing opportunity if you're just getting in 
to pick their brains, to get the information, to have them share their experiences with you about their facility, their markets. Um, so much value there. And then I love the idea, too, that once you make those connections, being able to approach it in a way that, again, you're not transactional. You're going in with the idea of uh, all the stories you hear about people going in and figuring out how they can provide value to that owner without any kind of expectation or return. They can say, hey, it looked like your website was kind of old. I've just went ahead and created you like a new website and uh, for your, your storage facility that people can do some online rentals. They can send you messages, do all this kind of stuff. If you want it, I'll give it to you for free or whatever. Just thought it might be nice for you to have that website. Like it's yeah. some of those things that are so simple and that you could just go out and do for people. Um, to provide value or to connect them with somebody else in the industry or to, yeah. you know, just whatever you can do to get in, provide value, build a long-term relationships. I just, I really love that strategy and just that connectivity because like you're talking about, we're always talking about, it is a long game. It's a small world. Don't be transactional. Don't be transactional, people. And then closing. Closing is a big one, right? So you need to be ready. It can't be catch a tiger by the tail because the closing part we have, first of all, you've got um, your PSA and LOI. So you have the actual legal part, the difference between a PSA and an LOI. A PSA is a purchase sell agreement, which is a legally binding document. An LOI is an agreement, but is not legally binding. So why are they different? Why use that? Well, first of all, an LOI sets the parameters and the mutually agreed, let's call them big things timeframes, penalties, the actual purchase price, right? Things like that. So the things that if you don't agree on, the deal's not going to go anywhere anyways. So the LOI is how you and that owner come to agree upon the main things and the framework. The PSA then is built around the LOI, which is the legally binding contract, which the attorneys go through and they iron everything out. And that sets the conditions in which the LOI will be executed. So this is now how this is going to work and you have to legally agree to it so when does the money go hard how much are you putting down and what are the conditions in which you can get out which are the penalties you have to do how all of those things work is what the psa dictates so first loi you create a what's the price how long due diligence what are what the how much are we putting down what and the framework, the big things, the framework of what it is. The PSA then goes in, becomes a legal document from the LOI. From there, you outline things like due diligence. So how long do you have to do, do due diligence? And does the money go hard after due diligence? And is there any contingencies to get out after the money goes hard? If there is, what are they? These are really important things. So can you then execute due diligence in that amount of time. One of the things I like to tell people is that during the due diligence period, you have things in your control and out of your control. I do not want my money to go hard or contingent when it's things that are not within my control. I'm talking about feasibility studies. I'm talking about, uh, excuse me, uh, phase one studies. I'm talking about things that the bank needs. So third party reports and studies, uh, things like appraisals, right? If that's not in my control, I don't want my money to go hard unless and when it's dependent on that, meaning that my money's gone hard and then I get a phase one study that's like, oh, this is bad. And the bank's like, well, we're not going to fund it anymore. And the seller's like, well, you can't get out because your money's already gone hard. So a contingency would be that, all right, the money's hard, contingent on getting these reports back and everything's okay. 
Mm-hmm. And it's, I have X amount of time I have to X review them. Time to review them. Like exactly. a survey review period. I That's think is right. Is yes. included in our yes. And so understanding, you know, how that's going to work and how you can execute. Can you if you have a three month contract, will the bank fund it in three months? If not, are you going to lose your money or do you have the contract that is contingent upon financing? Right. So these are the things that you need to understand before you go into it is what do you need? What do you need to close the deal? Then before you get into that contract, what has to happen for you to take ownership? Meaning day one, utilities, right? Payments, all this kind of stuff. Third-party vendors. Mm-hmm. Bank right. accounts. Everything. Bank accounts, yeah. all of it. How do we transfer that? How do we, remember, what assets that are there are we going to own or are we not? IP, websites. IP, websites. websites. Pieces. Exactly, yeah. all of it. And you got to know this stuff so that way during due diligence you're working on it. Because then by the time you get there, this is day one stuff. Meaning that if it's day one, you had to start a month prior, two months, three months prior, right? Or else you're not gonna have power and now you're gonna have um, problems with tenants and bank accounts aren't gonna go through. And there's maybe uh, lease agreements that you don't have and all of this stuff, right? So you make a list, here's my due diligence, here's the time frame which I need, I have my banking partners that I'm already working with, they've given me an outline, here's all the reports we're gonna need and here's the time frame we're gonna need. I put all that into the PSA. So it, it's not about it being complicated or anything, you don't have to know everything, that's why you hire attorneys, title companies, bank accounts, right, third party management companies, they all help you with close. So you need to know who's on your team and then ask those people, what do we need to take it over? What do we need to close? What do we need to fund? What do we need to know during due diligence? What are the third party reports? Those people can tell you, you make a list, that goes into the PSA, make sure you have enough time to execute, and then you're fine. But not being prepared, you're gonna drop one of those balls. So that's what you can't do. So closing, you need to be prepared before you get under contract. Or what will happen is you find a deal and then you don't go under contract because you get scared. You're like, oh, wow, I haven't even thought about closing. I don't even know these things. I don't even think maybe I can't even do this or pull this off. And then you walk away. Now you've ticked off brokers, everybody else, and you just lost a deal. Um, you don't need to self-sabotage, right? If you're prepared in the simplest format, as you're going through the process, everybody can help you out through it. Right. I, we didn't know anything about real estate at all when we were first buying. We we're figuring everything out. Attorneys were telling us, right, banks. And we made all sorts of mistakes, but we had people help us and we got the important things right. So when you're going into 2024 to get your first deal, buy box, the acquisition process, and then the closing, be preparing for all of those, all of them. Um, we have due diligence lists and all things that we can try to provide. I didn't have anything when we started to help us. There was no books like for self-storage. We didn't have podcasts. We didn't have materials. So we went and paid people lots of money to try to help. And even then, we just made lots of mistakes and it took lots of time. So hopefully, guys, this can help you bypass and give you confidence to get started. We were buying and we didn't even know how to do it. So it felt way riskier, way more scary because we were learning as we went through the process and making mistakes based upon what other people told us, forgetting things, leaving things out, not knowing we didn't have to have contracts, not getting contracts signed to transfer things over. We bought a site and we didn't outline that the website was in the assets, so we didn't get it. We had to start all over from scratch. 
we made all the mistakes, right? Yeah. So like it's <laughs> been there, done that. And so we, we're trying to produce all of that out there so you guys can be 20 years ahead of me when, when we got started. Yes. Well, and this is such a key piece to not only finding those deals, but running the deals again, the long term, like being in the industry for a while, surrounding yourselves with the experts. And I think this is part of that webinar that you were talking about as yeah. well, yeah. is yep. having the community, having the resources, that expertise um, to be able to rely on. And what an incredible time, like you're talking about, an opportunity nowadays with all of those resources like this podcast yeah, and the books and so much. It's groups. never been easier. Ever oh, been easier. It's totally insane. Yeah. It, it, a lot of people... We mentioned this perspective, right, and how skewed it is, where people look back, oh, well, if I was back then, I'd do it. First of all, when back then when we were doing it, people were like, oh, it was easier when they were nine caps. And it was like, yeah, but they were nine caps because nobody believed in the asset. <laughs> yeah. So nobody was even looking for it. Nobody wanted it. So if back then, everybody else, you and everybody else didn't want them. That's why they were nine caps, right? And there was nobody to help you execute. Very, very hard. Um, no knowledge to how to operate or run these things. And there were no third-party management companies. So then you bought it and you had to figure out what to do with all these tenants and doors. It was not simple or easy. Hence the reason it was nine caps. Yeah. Um, now, when you then went in the recession, right, nobody was buying at all because of the conditions. So we always look back and say it would have been easier, it would have been easier. Oh, there was more deals or they're better priced, right? But it's not actually true. So it, it that perspective right is very much skewed because it's hindsight um, and you see how something directly worked out whereas today you're getting to start out your resources tools available and everything it, it's so much more it, it, it's incredible it's absolutely incredible so you are lowering your risk you are speeding up your access your ability to grow and scale in ways we could not have done 10, 15 years ago. It just didn't even exist. So that means your performance is actually better and higher. It took us a long time to turn around facilities, years and years and years, because first of all, we didn't exactly know how to do or what to do. Revenue management, rate increases, stuff, we were making that up as we went. Um, if we would have all the tools and resources we did now, we'd be 10 times our size. Mm -hmm. And so they may you may look at a price difference, but... I actually believe it's easier and better today than it was back then. With all those things said, I know you mentioned earlier about this idea of finding the deal, getting to the close, having the tiger by the tail, not knowing what to do, people not closing, yeah. you know, destroying relationships, yes. reputations. What what do you think are those factors that don't allow people to close? Is it not being prepared? Is it not having ducks in a row? What, what have you seen are the most common things that prevent people from actually closing and executing? Yeah, I, I think most of the time it is the unknown. It's fear-based. Um, I think that they do not very much work up front. And so then they are when it comes time to do it, now they're uncovering things and trying to discover they should have understood a long time prior. So they're getting under contract. They view that as, or finding that deal and getting under contract then to find out if it's a deal or not. So they're going and talking to brokers, brokers are giving them deals and they're doing all this work. And then when it comes time to either make a decision 
then they really start to look at it. Oh, this isn't what I want. Or I don't know about this anymore. Okay, you should have that, that should have happened way at the beginning, right? So by the time that you're at the point where you should even be going under contract or not, the things that should make you not close or not go into contract are the negotiation parts to try to get the deal done. Mm -hmm. It is not whether or not you want that deal. Another thing that I see um, that break down is the lack of understanding of the wants of the seller. So they walk in and they believe it needs to be done a certain way. They butt heads and they can't close. They can't get that contract done. Um, and a lot of that comes with inexperience, uh, especially in this asset class. So the more you can uncover, the quicker you can, and the more you can be prepared and have a team around you that'll have the confidence to close, but you'll also be know, you'll know what you're buying and what you're doing before you get to that point. When I tell the team, when we go under contract, that means we bought it. Like in our mind, we're buying it. That's the whole reason we're under contract. If we are under contract and we don't know that we are going to buy that deal, we should never be under contract. Mm -hmm. uh, there's so few deals that I've ever gone on under contract that we have not closed on. And the reason is, is because we found something that was opposite of what we were told. So we went under contract and the, the information that had been given to us was not correct. Well, how can you expect us to like, no, it's not the same deal that you told us it was. It's not our fault, yeah. right? We had one where the taxes were half, half of what hit, or they had reported that they were half of what they were really going to be. Mm -hmm. Well, your taxes double. You're not getting the, the same price. It's the second largest expense. So then they don't want to reduce the price. But the numbers you gave were wrong, right? Those things happen, but those things aren't your fault. Other than that, pretty much every deal we go under, we go under contract. Uh, we go under contract, we buy. There's a few reasons for that. First of all, like I said, we should know prior. Second of all is um, I don't, I do not jerk brokers around and sellers around. If we say we're going to do something, we're going to do it. There's a lot of people out there in the real estate game that go put lots of deals under LOIs. Then they just try to pick the best one they can get. They're like trying to wrap up the market. Um, I believe that's a sign of inexperience. And I believe that's a sign of not being a professional or knowing what you're doing. Because you're just trying to buy things and then figure it out. You're all over the place. Ah, right, here's 10 deals. Out of the 10 deals, you should know which deals you're going to buy. And if you don't plan on buying 10 deals, only one, what are you doing wasting so much time, money, and resources on 10 deals? It's just because you don't know what you're doing. And I think brokers feel that way and they understand that. So I try to build a reputation up that if we get to contract, we're going to close and the brokers know we're there. We are told when we got done, you were one of the easiest and best groups to work with. There is not a better compliment that I could get because we're not fighting with anybody. You know, these major groups are always coming back at the end and they're trying to knock that seller down a price when they're under contract there's major groups in our industry and brokers are blacklisting these guys and stuff i hate that stuff it's untruthful you're lying and then you're going in and abusing somebody in that situation i don't do that stuff and you 
people think that, oh, and I, maybe that's taken from other industries and brought into storage. Storage is way too small of an industry, guys. Don't do that. You're going to get a bad name. If you're going to do something, do it. If you say you're going to do it, do it. Don't go and trick people into a high price and then beat them up over things that you already knew. Be upfront, be honest. And now you may say, AJ, we're worried about not getting a deal. We bought deals that we were not the highest price. In fact, that actually helped us get the deal. Why? Because we said, this is the price, we're not budging, and here's why, right? Well, one time we went, did it, broker said, well, the owner wants to go with the highest one. They came back, two months later, we'll sell it to you, 500,000 less than the other one bought it. They were jerking us around, right? Great. Done. We, we knew it. We totally <laughs> jerk around everything else. Other ones, they didn't even go with the higher offer. Like 250000 less, and they went with us. Because yeah. the broker's like, these guys won't, they're not going to play those games. Quality over quantity. Yeah, man. long-term yep. games. Be open and honest with the broker. This is my first time. This deal meets my, meets my requirements because of this. Please tell me if I'm missing something here. Now, hold my hand as we walk through this, Okay. Here's my money. Here's what I'm doing. Here's the banks that I'm using. My first time, this is the deal that I want for all these reasons here. I just want you to be aware and be patient, but we're closing on it. Here's my backing. I'm ready to go. Be open about it. It's not a sign of weakness, okay? And you have experts that back you so you don't get taken advantage or anything like that. But um, the more open you are and the more, more honest you are about your situation, the more the market can get you what you want and need mm -hmm. i strongly believe that now some people may say aj that's being naive but it's worked out for us for a long long time and i would rather live life like that than playing games and trying to get one a leg up and you know stepping over dollars to pick up pennies and i just i don't want to run a business that way and uh, it's just not worth the time. And I think the more that everybody does that, the better you'll be in the long run anyways. Amen to that. It's a good place to wrap up. Right on. All right, everybody. Go out and get that first deal. Appreciate you. Talk Thanks, soon. Guys.